If you'll take your Bibles and go to Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, we're beginning a new series tonight, verse by verse through the book of Exodus, entitled, I Am Still Is, I Am Still Is. You might be thinking, Pastor, why are we skipping chapters 1 and 2? We're not skipping it. Sometimes, you know, like with Genesis, it just made sense when you got a theme beginning with God that you just start right off in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But it helps us to under to have a, an interpretive understanding before we go into a book of what the human author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is trying to get across to his first readers. And so I believe if we'll take the time here to really focus on the theme of Exodus, which is our theme title here, I am still is, I think it'll give us a good jump start as we go into the book beginning next week. And so Exodus chapter three, and we're going to cover this week verses 17 through verse 15. Exodus chapter three and verse seven. What's happened in chapter three is that Moses is on the backside of the desert Actually, verse 1 would tell us that he is uh, caring for his father-in-law's flock in Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is also Mount Sinai, same mountain. And so um, that's where he is. And if you remember, of course, he comes across a bush that's on fire, but is not being consumed. And he says, I shall turn aside and see why this bush is not consumed. And so he goes and it was God speaking to him out of this burning bush. And so we're going to kind of come in in the middle of this. And of course, obviously we'll cover chapter three here in just a few weeks. And so we're not going to go into great detail. Just want to highlight some points from this that really give us the thrust as to what God is doing with the book of Exodus. So Exodus chapter three, verse seven. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them that God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, 
Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord, there's I am, <laughs> Jehovah, Yahweh, I am God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. And so the title of our message tonight is the title of our theme. I am still is. May God bless reading his word. You can be seated. When I say that we're going to start a new series in the book of Exodus, you hear that word Exodus and there are probably some pictures that come to your mind immediately. When we think of the book of Exodus, you probably think of something like Moses staff turning into a snake. <laughs> you probably think of water turning into blood. You probably think of the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea. You think of the plagues that were going on there. You think might have the picture in your mind of Moses being floated down the river in a little basket and just I mean, you know, looking at little Lydia there, I can't imagine what it'd be like for a parent putting that baby in a basket and just saying, Lord, take him, <laughs> protect him. And yet those are many of the pictures that would come to your mind when you think of the book of Exodus. And a lot of times we might think and consider, well, the book of Exodus is about Israel or it's about Moses or it's about deliverance from bondage. And so we get these pictures in our mind of what we think the book of Exodus is about, but right here from the very get-go, I want to establish from an interpretive standpoint, the book of Exodus is about God. It's about God, the God of Israel. And so we don't want to make any mistakes there. But for us to truly know what this book is about, we've got to take some time tonight to put ourselves in the shoes of the, the, the ones to whom these books were specifically given, to the first readers of the Pentateuch, the book of Exodus, as well as Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are, that's what's called the Pentateuch. It's the five, the five books of Moses. And uh, these were different volumes or almost like different chapters of each book. And so that's why as you go into Exodus chapter one, it looks like the story just goes straight on from Genesis because it does. It just goes into where when they did the Greek translation of the book of Exodus, um, they, the word Exodus means a departing. And so the Greek translators are the ones that gave it this name of Exodus. But in the original Pentateuch, it would just read straight through like a story. It was just a different set uh, from Genesis and the others as well. And these books were given to a specific group of people for a specific purpose. And it's important for us to understand who it was written to, why it was written, because God's message to them is God's message to us today. And so we've got to start off from that standpoint. So who was this book written to? Well, the generation of Israel that was going into the promised land, they were about to enter. You think of the Joshua generation. Those are the ones to whom this original Pentateuch was given to. But the people going into the promised land they only have vague memories, if any memories at all, of their deliverance from Egypt, of the Red Sea. They would have been small or even born in the wilderness. And so this generation going in, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have all of the, the memories of seeing those waters parted, of seeing the plagues coming. 
And so if you put yourselves in their shoes, well, let's ask this question first. Why are they just now going into the promised land? Well, because if you remember your Jewish history, what happens is they, from the time they crossed the Red Sea, went to Sinai and made their way to the land of Canaan that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They arrived there at the Jordan's banks and they send 10 spies out into the land of Canaan. And 10 of those 12, they send 12 spies, 10 of those spies come back and they give a report that the walls are too high. The armies are too large. The giants are too tall. We're as grasshoppers in their side. I just don't think we can make it. And it says that they discouraged the hearts of the people. And because of that generation's lack of faith to be able to go in. I mean, they, let's think about this for a moment. That generation saw the parting of the Red Sea. That generation saw the plagues. They saw the, the blood put over the posts at the night of the Passover when the death angel came. They saw the armies of Egypt drowned in the Red Sea, and yet they come up to the very banks of the land that God promised to give them, and they say, no, I don't think God can do this. And as a result, because of their lack of faith, they were turned back by God into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years until that entire generation had passed off the scene. So now you've got the young people, those who are small coming across the Red Sea. They don't remember much of it. They've had their own children who don't know anything of it except for the stories and the legends that they've heard over the last 40 years. And now here they are back at the banks of the Jordan River and they see the same walls and they know the same giants are there. And they know that, that it's going to be just as difficult, that there's all the military that, and, and these uh, strong kings and these mighty cities. And, and as they're standing on the banks of the promised land, I mean, they're right there. They're this close that I just wonder if the doubts began to come back into their mind. How do we know that this is going to be a success? <laughs> How can we uh, trust that if we enter into this promised land that God is going to uh, allow us to conquer these armies? I mean, and so when you think about it, they are considering that they've got an uncertain future in front of them right now. And what Moses has done is he has written these five books before he passes off the scene right before they enter the promised land and he is giving it to them. He gave them Genesis as we looked over the last year and a half or so. He gave them Genesis to show them the God that called their fathers into this covenant relationship. And, and we saw throughout the book of Genesis that there was obstacle after obstacle after obstacle and mistake after mistake and failure after failure that God still overcame to preserve their lives down there in Egypt. He gave them that so they would know who their God was. And now as we transition into the book of Exodus, he wants to show them what their God did for them. <laughs> he wants to show them uh, how, wh or really why they can trust God. He wants to show them the God who is with them today was the same God that was with their fathers before. And so as they're considering how are we going to conquer this land and how do we know that God is with us, the book of Exodus has all the answers to their questions. Exodus answers those questions and it shows them that this journey that they were on was a part of God's plan. It was part of God's plan and why they should trust in their God. But it's important that we study it 
Because a lot of times we look at these Old Testament, uh, the, the Old Testament law, we get to these books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and that's when we're in our Bible reading, we're kind of just like, oh, here we go again. The tabernacle and all these different loops and holes and tatchets and vessels and, you know, sp- how does that edify me? Well, what we need to understand is this, that there are times in our lives when, like the nation of Israel, we face an uncertain future. There are times when we wonder if God can come through in this situation in my life. We've got obstacles that we face. We've got battles that have to be fought. We've got struggles that have to be wrestled with. And we can ask ourselves the same question. How did I know that this is God's plan? How can I know that I can trust God to get me through this? And that's what Exodus answers for us. This idea that I am still is. He was for that generation and he is for this generation. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to show you how the book of Exodus specifically helps us face our future with confidence in God. Why we need the book of Exodus. The first thing that as we just kind of give a brief, brief synopsis of the book, what we can really do is find it here in these verses that we covered. God's plan was to deliver Israel out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land. That's what his plan was. It says in verse number seven that the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters for I know their sorrows. Now what's happened here between Genesis chapter 50 and Exodus chapter three is that Joseph's generation passed off the scene. And in fact, about 400 years have passed off the scene. And it tells us in chapter one that a king rose up that knew not Joseph. And this king was violent. This king was fierce. And he saw the the population gain amongst the Israelites was out of control. And so he began to to oppress them and to make them serve with rigor. And they began to beat them and whip them as they were working in this hard servitude. And so you've got this king who is violently oppressing God's people and God steps in and he says this, I've seen their affliction, I've heard their cries, and I know their sorrow. See, I want you to know tonight that God sees and he hears and he knows the evil that we face because of sin. The evil that man suffers. The Israelites were suffering under this bondage because the king of Egypt was evil. And evil men who gain absolute power will do things that are absolutely evil. And that's what was going on there. But still today, this world is full of evil because man's heart is evil. That's why we have terrorist attacks. That's why we have mass murders and massacres. That's why we have armed robberies and hate crimes and race crimes and the taking of unborn innocent lives. I mean, we can look at all the violence and all the evil that surrounds us and we can wonder, where's God in this? That's what a lot of people ask. Where is God in this massacre? Where is God in this shooting? Why doesn't he step in? Is he an absent God who just kind of created everything and then left it to destroy itself? But what Exodus tells us is this, God sees, God hears, and God knows, but it also tells us that God's plan and desire is to deliver man out of the evil that he faces. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to die on the cross, to pay the price for our sins so that we can have a relationship with 
with God. And we've got to understand that we cannot be delivered from the violence and the evil that it comes as a result of sin merely by legislation and the relinquishing of freedoms. Because while you may be able to regulate the tools of evil, you cannot regulate the fools of evil. The reality is man's heart is evil and it is wicked. And the only way to stop the violence, the only way to stop the evil and end the sin is to change the heart of man. And what the Bible teaches us is that in the new covenant, when Jesus came, that he would remove the heart of stone and he would replace it with a heart of flesh, one that's tender, one that's soft, one that isn't so cold hearted that it could take the life of an unborn child. He's got to replace and refine the heart of man for evil to be changed. And the good news is that Jesus can do it. He can. When God saw our affliction and he heard our cries and he knew our sorrows, he came and saw our sinful condition and he came to deliver us. Praise his name for it. God was determined to deliver Israel from Egypt to the promised land. He says in verse eight, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land. Notice that. I'm going to take them out of this evil land, this state of oppression that's going on in their lives, and I'm going to take them to a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that I promised to their fathers. It was that land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Why does he give all those different nights? Because he wants that nation to know that's about to step across the Jordan River that every one of those enemies were promised over 40 years ago that God was going to give them their land. He wants them to know, I've got a plan here. My plan is to deliver you out of Egypt into the promised land. And he's going to send Moses to do it. Verse 9, now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel. He doesn't just say my people. He wants these Israelite readers to understand you are my people. The children of Israel are my people. And he says, I want you to bring them out of Egypt. And so what is God's message here? I mean, again, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the original readers. What are they going to get from something like this? That God had a promise to their fathers that he planned to fulfill in their lives today. That his promise had not uh, lacked. He had not failed to come through in that. But that just as he delivered the previous generation from their enemies in Egypt, he was also going to deliver them from their enemies in Canaan. That's what he wants them to get. And so God's showing them that this was his plan all, all along. First of all, to deliver them from Egypt and to bring them into the promised land. And so what you find in the book of Exodus is that's what the first uh, 15 chapters are about. Is God bringing them out of Egypt. Delivering them out of this oppression. Delivering them out of this bondage that they were going through. The second part of God's plan was this. To free them to serve him to free them to serve him. You see, what happens in verse 11 is Moses is questioning now. It says, Moses said unto God, who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly 
I will be with thee. And he says, this shall be a token unto thee. This is gonna, I'm going to give you a sign right here that can, that, that can give you the confidence to understand I'm going to do this. Here's what he says the sign is in, in uh, verse 12. When thou hast brought the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Right here where the burning bush is. Right here where I have met with you. I'm telling you this right now. That when you bring them, not if, when you bring them out of Egypt, you're going to serve God. You're going to serve me right here on this mountain. Verse 1 tells us it's Mount Horeb. Later on, it's called Mount Sinai. And that is where God reconfirms the covenant with the nation of Israel and gives them the law and gives them further promises and begins to establish the worship of God. He wants them to understand that my plan is to deliver you out of Egypt, not for you to just go on and do whatever in the world you want, but it's to bring you to a place where you can serve me and worship me and have a relationship with me like all of humanity was created to do. That's the goal here. And so as God calls them my holy nation, he's going to uh, bring them out to serve him. And so what you have here is that uh, chapter 16 through 19 then is about the journey from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai to bring them out, to do exactly what he said. I told Moses, I'm going to bring you out and you're going to serve me in this mountain. And so chapter 16 through 19 is that journey from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And then what you have is chapters 20 through chapter 24 is uh, God gives them the Ten Commandments. In uh, chapter 20, the moral law, the, the moral establishment of God's covenant, as well as a host of other laws and different things. And then you get into chapters 25 through chapter 40, and it gives the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and the construction of the tabernacle and the establishment of the priesthood and what you see in all this going on in the book of Exodus is God saying this I'm going to deliver I see you I hear your cries I know your sorrows and my plan is not for you to remain in that oppressed condition but I'm going to deliver you out and I'm going to free you from that domination of slavery and I'm going to free you to willful service willful service to the God who delivered you out of slavery. There's a difference between slavery and service. Slavery, it, it, it means that you're forced into this. Now, there were consequences if you didn't serve God as his redeemed people, but the reality is, is it, it, the motivation. See, that's where the Pharisees messed up in the New Testament. <laughs> Was, was, oh, I got to do this and I got to do that and I got to keep this list of rules and regulations. It became very obligatory and it became very uh, ritualistic to them when what God's plan all along was, hey, for you to recognize what God has done for you and why he redeemed you out of this condition so that you could have a relationship with the creator of the universe, the God of Genesis. He wants you to have a relationship with him. And so he brought them out of Egypt and he led them to Sinai and he gave them his covenant and called them my holy nation and showed them how to worship him. I mean, you can see God doing a full redemption here to show these people, you are mine and I am yours. Talk about a wonderful relationship and an opportunity that they had here. And so his purpose in delivering them from Egypt was for them to serve him in Canaan. That was his pur purpose. That was his plan. 
And so what's the message here to Israel as they're standing on the banks of Jordan about to cross the promised land? Well, first of all, it's this. God delivered them from their enemies. God will deliver you from your enemies. Second of all, it's this. God delivered them out of Egypt to a relationship of service to him. So what does God want for them in Canaan? For them to cross the banks of Jordan and not to adopt the worship of the Canaanites, not to adopt the religious system of the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites, not to go out and just live however they want. No, he, he called them out of Egypt and he did all these miracles and all these wonders along the way. And he was going to do more in the land of Canaan. And he was going to give the entire land of Canaan into their hands. And the reason why was so that they could serve him in their land. That's what he wanted to do. Can I just remind you today that when you call upon Christ to be your savior and he delivers you and redeems you out of the bondage of, of sin, he doesn't want you to just go and live however you want. There ought to be some kind of respect, some kind of reverence for a God who would spend so lavishly upon us, who would leave the glory of heaven and take on a human flesh and subject himself to the violence and evil that was our fault, not his, and to give his life on the cross for our redemption, there ought to be a certain reverence within us that doesn't say, oh, I've got to go to church on Sunday, but I get to go to church on Sunday and I get to worship God and sing his praise and be with his people and serve him and share him with my community. And I ought to live a life that is holy. I mean, let's remember that, that in first uh, Peter chapter two and verse nine, it says "But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. His plan is not for us to take the life that he has redeemed and go live for whatever we want to live for. It's to live that life in service to him, willful service to him. And anytime our service to him becomes obligatory, we need to go back to the cross and remember what he did for us. And that'll put us back in the right place. God's plan was to deliver Israel from a life of slavery in Egypt to a life of service and worship in the land of Canaan. And that's what Exodus is about. But here's the reality. Before they could really be delivered from all their past in Egypt, and before they could really have their enemies delivered into their hands and find victory in the land of Canaan, they needed to know who the God was that they were serving. And so when Moses comes and, and he says, well, when I go and I tell them that you've sent me to them, how, what do I tell them your name is? They're going to say, who is the God of our fathers? <laughs> who do I tell them? And God says to him in verse 14, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. That's a weird name. When you look up, this is a, a really a double name here. It's I am, I am in the original. What it is that's emphasizing what the name means, and that is this, I exist. I exist. I'm the self-existent one. I'm the real one. I'm the true one. I'm not the gods of Egypt. I am God. <laughs> well, why is he naming himself I am? 
Why is he naming himself Yahweh? Why is he naming himself Jehovah? Well, because it's possible that these children of Israel who are now on the banks of the promised land, that they're too, uh, they were too young to remember the Red Sea and they're too young to remember the plagues and they're too young or maybe they don't have any recollection because they weren't even born yet. All they've heard is legends. All they've heard of stories. And yet as they're coming through this, they're, they're wondering, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let me go back to the children of Israel in bondage right now. They've heard about the God of Abraham. They've heard about the God of Isaac. They've heard about the God of Jacob, but they're sitting here thinking right now, where has he been in all of this? What about our slavery? If he was a God who really loved us, why would he allow us to suffer this way? If he was the real, I mean, maybe he is just a legend. Maybe he is just like one of the other gods out there that everybody just tells us about, but nobody ever sees or hears from. What if he's just one of those? And God is telling Moses, I want you to go down and tell them that the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is coming to deliver you out of Egyptian bondage. And they ask you, well, who is that? I want you to tell them this. I am. I am real. I do exist. In the words of Coach Prime lately, I'm coming. That's what he's been saying since he got here to see you. I'm coming. That's what God's saying. I'm coming for you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you out of this, and I'm going to do it quickly. I am that I am. And then it says that he's to tell them that this was the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you in verse 15. And then he says this, and this is my, my, my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations He says, I want every single generation to understand that I am not just the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, but I am your God and I am still here today. While Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are gone, I am still here today and I can still come through for you the very same ways that I came through for them and I'm going to. That's what God's telling him. And I want you to remember this, Jehovah, Yahweh, as my name forever. He wants them to know that the God who worked in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still lives and is the same God who will work for them today. So why did God give this book to the children of Israel standing on the banks of the Jordan River? He gave it to them because he wants them to know that the God who worked in their fathers back in Egypt is still the same God who will work for them today. He wants them to know that the same God, as they stand on the banks of the Jordan River, the God who is with them is the God who parted the Red Sea waters. He wants them to know that the God who, that who is with them as they go in to conquer the walls of Jericho is the same exact God who brought the plagues upon Egypt, who brought frogs out of nowhere out of the river, the God who turned the dust into lice, the God who sent hail from heaven to, to destroy all the crops. He wants them to understand that the God 
God who worked all these miracles, brought water from a rock to feed millions of people, and the God who rained down manna from heaven, and the God who allowed their shoes not to wear out, and their clothes not to wear out. He wants them to know the miracles that God has done are not just the miracles of your fathers who just died in the wilderness. It's the God of the miracles that he'll perform in your life. He's the same God who will part the Jordan rivers. He's the same God who will bring those walls down. He's the same God who will go before you and fight against your enemies. He's the same God who will, who will give you the full and complete deliverance that he has promised to do. He wants them to know this. I am still is. That the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the God of the enslaved nation of Israel and he's still the God of the free nation of Israel and he'll still be the God of the nation of Israel who settles in the land of Canaan. I am still is. And so he wants them to understand this, that regardless of the generation, God was still the same God of the same people with the same promises and the same power. He was the same God. And so why do we still have the book of Exodus today in the canon of scripture? Because God wants us to know that the God who worked in the nation of Israel is still the same God who works in our lives today. He's still a God who brings people out of their darkest bondage of life that you can imagine because Jesus did come and he did die to pay the price so that all sinners by faith in Jesus Christ could, could, uh, could trust in him and could be reconciled to a right relationship with God and could be restored to the place that they were supposed to be in Eden walking with God and talking with God and to be able to spend eternity with him. God has commissioned his church to go into all the world, to go to Cambodia with the gospel so that people who are living under poverty and oppression. He wants them to tell those Cambodians that I see your affliction and I hear your cries and I know your sorrows and I'm still a God today who can deliver you out of that if you'll but trust my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a God who's still sending this church into this community to people who are strung out on drugs on the street, to people who drink their misery away every single night. He's sending us to people who are abused by their spouses or by their parents or even by their children. He's sending us to people who have, who have lived lives that are unimaginable to many Christians. He's sending us to them to tell them that there is hope beyond the addictions that they're swallowed up in right now and that God can break those chains and free them from their sin. And he sees their affliction and he sees even if they can't see it themselves, God sees how weighed down they are in depression and grief because the way that they are spending their lives away in all the rot and mire of immorality and he wants to deliver them if they would simply trust in Christ but I also want to tell believers tonight that he's still a God who can deliver you as well that he's able to, to provide hope for those who are shackled by sexual sin. Those He can give freedom to those who are bound to drugs and alcohol. Those who are ruled by their anger in their life. The same God who delivered Israel out of their Egyptian bondage is still the same God today who can deliver you out of whatever bondage that you're in tonight, my friend. He can deliver you. Like the nation of Israel, as a church, we face some uncertain days ahead of us in our country. 
The freedom of religion and expression has taken some major hits in recent years. And we can begin to have questions. How far is this going to go? I mean, is persecution coming? Our church is going to lose their uh, tax exemption status. What if they've got to pay property taxes? They're going to have to sell their buildings. Is the church going to have to go underground? Are people going to start shutting down churches because of the types of messages that, that they preach and the types of lifestyles that they, that, that, that they speak to? Are they going to be shut down for those reasons? And we can just begin to wonder, how is the church going to go forward? But what Exodus gives us hope for as a church is that there's a God who can deliver people from oppression, and there's a God who's more powerful than his enemies, and the fact that we can still cling to the promise that Jesus gave us, that he will continue to build his church, and even the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nonetheless, the gates of America, he will Continue to build his church if we'll be faithful to do the work he's given us to do. As a church plant, we could look at the economic situation of this city and say, we'll never have a building. It'll never happen. It will cost us millions of dollars. We're a small church in an atheistic, agnostic city. Who knows if we'll ever even get to enough people who could possibly afford to purchase a building or what kind of bank would ever loan to a small church like ours. And we can just get of the mindset that, that we'll never, ever, ever have a building. But what we do when we do that is we write off the I am. We forget that, that oh, wait, we serve a God who, as you can see on the image, parted the Red Sea. <laughs> we still serve a God who brought water out of a rock to feed millions of people. We serve a God who, by the way, created the entire universe ex nihilo out of nothing. And you're telling me that he can't just drop a building in the lap of a church like ours? I'll tell you this, many churches have seen it happen before. Uh, this, uh, this church building here, this wonderful Chinese congregation of 40 to 60 Chinese folks, God gave them this building for $500,000 in Boulder. (laughs) If he did it for them, that's something that he could do for us when we get to 40 or 50 or 60. And so why would we say that he's just the I am of Israel? God doesn't work in that way. He doesn't part the waters anymore. He doesn't show up in a, in a cloudy pillar, a pillar of fire anymore. He doesn't show up in burning bushes. No, he may not show up in that way, but he still shows up spectacularly in our lives. Why? Because I am still is today and he can be for our church as well. But there might be times in your life personally when you face uncertain future. We aren't sure which way your job's going to go. Another round of layoffs is coming. Another round of cuts. Or maybe relationships have soured at work. You're just not sure how that job's going to work out. Or maybe the pay isn't cutting it anymore and you're just not sure. Maybe I'm going to have to get a different job. Or maybe I'm going to take on two jobs. Or I've already got two jobs and now I'm going to take on a third job. And I just don't know how this is going to work out. Your marriage may be on the ropes. It may be uncertain. Maybe a relationship with your kids is on the ropes and you don't know how this is going to go in the future. And, and we can look at our economy today and how the housing market has exploded. And I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford rent. I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford my mortgage. And we've got all this uncertainty about our health and about our, our, even your future ministry. And you don't know which direction this is going to go. But let's do remember that God did lead the nation of Israel by a cloud And by day, and he led them by a pillar of fire by night. And again, we may say, well, he doesn't lead that way anymore. No, but here's what Jesus said. 
it's essential, it's, it's best for you if I, who Jesus was right there with his disciples, he said, it's best for you if I go away so I can send you the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? Jesus said, and you know, a lot of times we're like, well, if Jesus was here living and walking with me, then I would be a better Christian. Jesus said, it's better for you to have the Holy Spirit within you than for me to be here present with you. Let's get our minds around that for a moment. He's given you the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came and went. Sometimes the Spirit would lead, sometimes the Spirit wasn't leading. What Jesus tells us is that the Holy Spirit leads us day by day by day by day. And on top of that, he's given us his completed, perfectly inspired and preserved word of God to be able to guide us through life, to guide us through marriage, to guide us through finances, to guide us through our our, our family, to guide us through our work situations. I mean, there's not a single question or problem that you can have that the word of God cannot speak to in your life. And so he still leads us. He still guides us. He still gives you that consciousness of the Holy Spirit to tell you, no, you shouldn't do this. Yes, you should do this. And all that's up for us to do is to yield to him. (laughs) Whichever way he says to go is what I need to do. I'm just telling you this. God still is today. He's not the God of the past. He's not the God of legends and history. He's the God of the present. He's the God of your life. So Exodus is not a book about Egypt. Exodus is not a book about Moses. It's not a book about Israel. Exodus is all about God. It reveals God as the eternal unchanging God who saves people from the oppression of evil into a relationship with him. Exodus shows us God dwelling on earth in an earthly tabernacle. And yet in all the law and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the tabernacle all along the way, it's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to a greater exodus, a greater deliverance, a greater Passover, a greater atonement, a greater priesthood, a greater tabernacle, and a greater savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, here's what we see, that the I am who delivered Israel from Egypt is still the same I am who can deliver you from whatever bondage you may be under today. I am still is. And what Exodus is going to show us throughout this course of study is that he is still worthy of our absolute and complete trust for every scenario you could come up with in life. So you're saying, what do I do with this? Well, if you're standing on the banks of an uncertain future, look back to the word of God you'll find all the encouragement that you need. You'll find that throughout Israel's history, he was constantly reminding them, I'm not the God of the past. I'm the God of today. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. 
Those Pharisees got spitting mad because they knew he's claiming to be God. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, who do you guys seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I almost wonder if Jesus said, I am he. <laughs> they fell down backwards. <laughs> he died on the cross for our sin. Gave his life for us. But he didn't stay in that tomb. He rose again and ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And today, he still is I am. So why don't we quit acting like God can't take care of me? Why don't we quit acting like God can't come through in this situation? Why don't we quit acting like God can't save my marriage? God can't save my finances. Why don't we quit acting like God can't do the impossible in our church? Why don't we quit acting like God can't do the impossible in the lives of atheists and agnostics and college students and drunks and druggies and, and, and all the different lifestyles that we have here? And why don't we start living today like God is still living today? Father, we thank you so much for the God that you are. You're a God who still reigns supremely and sovereignly over the universe. You're a God who still involves yourself in human affairs. A God who still sees, who still hears, who still knows. And I pray that, Lord, in those times when we would doubt it, we would remember, I am still is. I pray that if there's anyone in the sound of my voice that has not yet trusted Christ as their Savior, that they would trust Him tonight and see the change and the transforming power that He can bring to their lives, that He can deliver them and free them from whatever is binding their souls tonight. And may Christ be magnified in our hearts as we go through this study to see your mighty power in our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.